America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Like a chrysalis, we're emerging from the economy of the Industrial Revolution. An economy confined to and limited by the Earth's physical resources into the economy in mind, in which there are no bounds on human imagination, and the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Business in the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by SAGE, supporting small and medium-sized businesses by creating greater freedom for them to succeed. I'm Ron Baker, along with my good friend, Barris Age Institute colleague and co-host, Ed Kless. And Ed, today we are so honored we have the distinguished Dr. Soul on, on the line with us. And Dr. Soul is currently the Rose and Melton Friedman Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, Stanford University. Dr. Soul was born in North Carolina and grew up in Harlem, New York. He received a bachelor's degree from Harvard, a master's from Columbia, and of course he earned his doctorate in economics from the University of Chicago. Dr. Soul, welcome to the Soul of Enterprise. Good being here. And, and I first want to thank you because our subtitle for the show is Business in the Knowledge Economy, and that was largely shaped by your book, Knowledge and Decisions. My heavens, I, I wasn't aware that people still read it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I know a lot of fan of fans of your work, Dr. Soul. And you just came out with your, your latest edition of Basic Economics, A Common Sense Guide to the Economy. It was published sometime this month. And I've been, uh, Ed and I have been making our way through it. And I've actually read the previous three editions. So I missed your fourth edition. But I, before we dive into your book, I, I, I would love to ask you, you were once a Marxist. And I, and I heard you say in an interview that you, you're probably one of the few economists that have actually read <laughs> Karl Marx. And you were still a Marxist even after emerging from Melton Friedman's class at the University of Chicago. What changed? Oh, we're, we're, I worked one summer as an economic intern for the government. And uh, once I saw how the government actually operated at a, at a professional level, I realized this is not going to make it. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. And then he just gradually moved away from it from there. Yes. Uh, you, you know, in basic economics, what I love about it, and, and I have to also tell you that I've, I've probably bought dozens of copies of this to give away because when I teach an economics course for professionals, your book is the foundation. And I've had so many people thank me, and I've given it to high school students, and I just I, I rave about this book. It is, without a doubt, I think, the single best book on economics, because you, you wrote this book without any graphs or equations, yes. and, and you say that learning economics should be uncomplicated but, and eye-opening. And I, I just love how you approach this entire book. It's just a work of genius. Well, thank you. It's mostly a work of a long time. It took a decade. Because wow. I started out not sure it was possible to cover the subject uh, without any graphs or equations. Because my first book, 
uh, was in fact an introductory economics book with graphs and equations. Uh, it went it went went down the tubes and has never been heard from since. <laughs> <laughs> and and Doctor Soul, this book has been translated in in seven languages, hasn't it? So it's yeah. really. Yeah, great. I'm I'm glad to hear that. And I love how, by the way, you inserted the hundred questions into this new edition for people who are homeschooling or using it as a text. Yes, I mean you you never really know that you've learned something until you can answer questions about it. Right. <laughs> well, well, let's dive right in. You're, one of the the things I love about what you do in chapter one, which is titled "What Is Economics," is you describe what economics is, and you use the Garden of Eden as a metaphor. Can you explain that? Yes, that uh, we we tend to think of an economy as simply some kind of system for uh, the production and distribution of goods and services. Uh, but then I point out that the Garden of Eden was a system for the production and distribution of services, and it, but it was not an economy because everything was available in unlimited abundance. So uh, I use the uh, definition of economist that Lionel Robbins used at the London School of Economics. It's the study of the use of scarce resources which have alternative uses, and it's the scarcity that's crucial. If if, if everything was available in uh, uh, unlimited abundance, there'd be no reason for, econ- for economics, and of course the economists would be unemployed. Right, and you know, one of the things that you've taught me is that there are no such thing as solutions, there are only trade-offs. So I guess when you write that it's not just about scarcity, but also about alternative uses, that's a really important component as well, isn't it? Oh, I, I, absolutely. Uh, unfortunately, in politics, people love to talk about solutions which means they will uh, analyze some problem in isolation and think that when they've dealt with that, that's the end of it, with no notion that uh, everything in a market economy especially, uh, but in other economies as well, everything is connected to everybody, everything, every, everything else. Uh, and uh, you can't just come in and say you will solve the housing problem, however you define that. Because as we've learned the hard way, yes, you can increase the uh, home ownership rate among low-income people and people with bad credit, but there will be repercussions. And uh, those repercussions, and in this case, reached around the world. People in, in Europe and Asia were losing money as the American uh, ho- housing market uh, collapsed. Right. I, I love how you write that politics allows people to vote for the impossible. Yes, because so many people talk about politics as the art of the possible. And that's not true at all. That there's nothing in the world to prevent people from voting for things which are mutually uh, incompatible and, mutu- and, and, and which make each other po- impossible. Dr. Soul, this is Ed here. Again, welcome to the program. Ron is clearly the more cerebral of the two of us. I've read your bio and I have to ask you one question as the son of a lifelong Brooklyn Dodger fan. Tell, tell me a little bit about your tryout with the Brooklyn Dodgers in 1948. <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, the, they held a tryout over in Williamsburg. There was a semi-pro team. Do, do you remember the name of the semi-pro team of that era? The Bushwicks, I think they were called. Oh, sure, sure, yeah. My dad talked about them, right? Uh, and so we're, we're playing at the Bushwicks ballpark, and behind the right field uh, wall, it was an old deserted factory with windows up there, and I could just see myself coming up to the plate and hitting balls over that fence and through some of those windows uh, until I discovered <laughs> that the Brooklyn Dodgers first give you a fielding test, uh, and only after you pass that do you get the bat. 
Uh, and uh, uh, my normal position was center field, but it took me forever in the spring to get up to the point where I could really gauge fly balls again. So I came in and took the test as a first baseman. I was an awful first baseman, and I never got to bat. And uh, I consoled myself afterwards by uh, uh, remembering that the Dodgers lost Johnny Mize by using that system. Now, Johnny Mize may not mean anything to, to people now- nowadays. Uh, he was one of the great sluggers of the mid-20th century. He hit 50-some home runs a couple of times. Yes, and, and is in the Hall of Fame now, so it, you you were just that much away from the Hall of Fame, weren't you? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I reminds me of once I was uh, play, playing uh, on the sandlots, and a teammate came in late to the game, and he said, uh, how'd you do in your first at bat? I said, I, I missed the home run by six inches. He said, what, did you get a double, a triple? I said, no, I struck out. <laughs> Perfect. That's a great story. I'm going to share that. I have a, an eight-year-old son, and we're well, nine-year-old now, and we I'm, I'm the coach of his baseball team. We just we just love it. And it, it, keeping along the lines of of, of baseball here, how, how's this for a for a? Uh, I'm going to try and connect topics. Uh, the idea of a fair price versus a foul price, uh, or, or fail, fair ball versus a foul ball. You know, it, it's it, it's in the word fair, or the, the where the original antonym of the word fail is, of course, foul. And we have to go to baseball to find that. And we talk about fair pricing and fairness of wages, but we never talk about foulness of them because the opposite doesn't quite make sense, does it? I mean, no. there's the so, so it's it's really a different word that we're searching for. Yes, and I, and I think uh, words words like fairness in 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 my new book, uh, and and I think there's some intimation of that in the current uh, basically economics, is that the world is unfair. Uh, there's just no two ways about it. I mean, uh, uh, had any of us been born, you know, up in some isolated mountain uh, in the Himalayas, uh, we may or may not have gotten an education and so forth. Um, but the, but the real problem politically is that people act as if politics can change that unfairness. A simple example, uh, kids who uh, are ra- raised by parents who are professionals, here's something like 2,100 words per hour. Uh, kids who are raised by parents who are ordinary working class people uh, hear about 1,100 words per hour. And kids whose parents are on welfare hear 600 words per hour. Now, from an, that means from an early age, there's this huge uh, deficit that this kid at the bottom is unlikely ever to overcome. Now, the problem is when people think that they can pinpoint where the unfairness occurred. All these kids grow up from these different classes, and they all go to the employer. And let's suppose the employer is a fair-minded man, and he treats everybody the same, he judges everybody by the same performance levels and so on, promotes, hires that way. Nevertheless, if you come along and check his employees, you're going to find very great disparities, especially if there are uh, different proportions of different ethnic groups who are on welfare and in professional jobs and so on. And so you collect the statistics and you say, my God, all the, too, too many of these people are in the top, too many of these are in the bottom. And what the fallacy there is, the assumption that the unfairness occurred where the statistics were collected. And there's no basis for that belief. Yeah, that, that's really a, a fantastic point. It, it, it's, it, 
But I, I also wanted to ask about the the fairness of prices. We had a, a, a guest on Reed Holden, who who is one of the foremost thinkers on pricing. And when we, one of the we had he he told us a story about buying or repairing his ice maker on his refrigerator, and it cost him two hundred and fifty dollars to do this. And he said that this was an unfair price. And I, I kind of challenged him on it because I said, well, did you pay it? And he said, yes. Yeah. So I said, well, then by definition, wasn't it fair? <laughs> I mean, he didn't rip you off. So I think that the whole notion of, of, of fairness has just been completely distorted uh, to the point where it, it, it doesn't even – it's a nonsense word now. It, it is. I think part of it is that when people are looking for causation or think, think they're looking for causation, often they are looking for blame. That someone must be blamed for this. That if uh, if there are not en- enough kids who grew up in Harlem who became violinists or uh, or uh, ballet dancers, uh, th- th- there are two two schools of thought. One is that there was a lack of ability, and the other is that there were barriers keeping them out. And to me, the third uh, possibility seems much more obvious. That is, they where I grew up in Harlem, I can't imagine a guy growing up wanting to be a violinist or a ballet dancer. I mean, the thought never crossed my mind. So I think this third thing is left out, and people reason as if everybody is trying to do the same things. And if you find that there are disparities in how many succeed, that shows you, as the, as the old genetic determinists used to say, they don't have the ability. And the others say, oh, someone uh, put up barriers against them. No, a lot of it is they, it never crossed their mind. That, that wasn't what they were trying to do in life. Right, it's just a, it's a basic non sequitur, and uh, well, uh, we're going to take a break right here, right right up against the break. So, thank you, Doctor Soul, for being on the show, and we'll we'll have you back for a second segment coming up. But we're going to take a break. Those of you interested in getting a hold of us can always email us at tsoe at verisage dot com. Afterwards, after the show, look for show notes at verisage.com slash TSOE. And, of course, we'll have show notes with Dr. Soul as well up as soon as possible. But first, we're going to have a, a mention from our sponsor, Leading Results. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. You've experienced it. Marketing and selling has changed dramatically in the last few years. The search engine has completely altered the way customers buy. Your clients are now driving the process their way. At Leading Results, we know how to work with this. We don't just jump in and start doing. Together, we plan your marketing strategy. Install a website that gets results and create lead generation programs that drive sales. Visit leadingresults.com slash TSOE to find out more and to schedule a 30-minute conversation with us. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio, Voice America Business Network. Right. Well, welcome back, everybody. We're here with Dr. Soul, author of over 30 books, including his latest, Basic Economics, A Common Sense Guide to the Economy. We've been going through uh, various chapters in the book. And Dr. Soul, I kind of want to jump to part six in the book where you talk about the international economy. There's three chapters. And I'll just take the first one. Chapter 21, you talk about international trade 
And I love you quoted a czarist minister who said, let us starve, but export. <laughs> and the, 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 the zero-sum thinking around the, the, the unfavorable and favorable trade balance, I mean, isn't this just complete nonsense? It is. I mean, people would not engage in economic activity uh, if, they, if they didn't feel better off engaging in them than, they, than not engaging in them. And that, and that applies to people on both sides of the transaction. So there's no way that they, that they can uh, uh, both be better off unless the, the, the transaction increases the total amount of wealth. Right. You, you point out that the USA ran a surplus in every year of the 1930s, a trade surplus. Yes, and it, it didn't do the Depression any good at all. Right. But, but, but you know, this, this goes back to the use of words, which goes back centuries. The mercantilists, of course, always regarded uh, an export surplus as a favorable balance of trade and an import surplus uh, as an unfavorable balance. But, of course, they were thinking in terms of Things that cause money to flow into, the, cause gold particularly to flow into the country and flow out of the country, uh, and of course uh, the whole point of Adam, Adam Smith's book, The Wealth of Nations, was to say no, gold is not the wealth of nations; it's the output of the country that is the wealth of nations, and therefore he, he shot down the mercantilists. Right, right. It wasn't it Frederick Bastiat who said if 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 imports are bad and exports are good, then we should sink all the ships at sea. <laughs> I hadn't heard that, but it, uh, that, it, that's the logical conclusion. It, it is. Uh, and then in Chapter 22, you talk about the international transfers of wealth and all of these words we use about colonialism, imperialism, slavery. Some countries are privileged and have better climates. You, you kind of refute all of these things with empirical evidence. Yes, uh, uh, empirical evidence uh, nowadays, of course, just, just when I'm giving empirical evidence, I sometimes wonder, uh, am I accomplishing anything other than revealing my age? Because <laughs> <laughs> it's so out of fashion, isn't it? That's, that's, that's right. Uh, uh, one of the, and, you know, and again, the whole notion of causation versus blame. Uh, Spain had one of the great uh, exploitation empires of all time. I mentioned in the, in the 23rd chapter how Spain uh, imported something like uh, 80 tons of gold. I mean, the very thought of measuring gold by the ton when it's usually measured by the ounce, you know, and, and uh, I think it was 18,000 uh, tons of silver brought in from the, from the Western Hemisphere uh, through terrible aid. They, they, they destroyed whole civilizations and uh, converted uh, uh, whole populations into virtual slave labor. And yet, when you come forward to see, well, what's the, what's the net effect in the long run? As of the year 1900, the, uh, a majority of the population of Spain was still illiterate. Uh, meanwhile, the uh, blacks in the United States, a majority of them had become literate, even though they were at that point freed only less than 50 years. And, and so you said, well, what happened to all that money? Well, it was dissipated in all kinds of things. Politically, there's a whole group of people who love to think that the, the rich countries got rich at the expense of the poor countries. Unfortunately, there's been great amounts of human suffering inflicted on people, producing nothing more than a transient enrichment of whatever happened to be the ruling class at the time. Uh, if slavery, for example, was, was a great source of enrichment, ask yourself, why is it white Southerners never 
uh, had as high a uh, standard of living as white northerners, even though slavery was banned in most of the north. Uh, right. And, and you, you see the same thing in Brazil, that the parts of Brazil where, where slavery was concentrated, which was in the north of Brazil, has always been the poorer part of Brazil. In Europe, the East, slavery landed, lasted in Eastern Europe longer than in Western Europe. Western Europe has always been more prosperous than Eastern Europe. A tremendous amount of moral damage can be done without having any great causal benefit to anybody. Right. And one of the things you've taught me, Dr. Soul, is there's a difference between an automobile crossing the border and a human being. Yeah. What is you and, and given, you know, that there are no solutions, there's only trade offs, what is what what is your optimal trade off policy regarding immig- the immigration debate? Well, the first uh, prerequisite to anything is to, clo- is to have control of the borders. If you don't control the border, then you really don't have any uh, immigration policy. It's just a question of what people choose to come, and uh, you just accommodate to it. I, uh, t- I'm always amazed at the other, otherwise very intelligent people who talk as if uh, we can uh, uh, keep the borders open for people to come across freely, just as we do with goods and services. And the difference is, when, you know, when we import a Toyota, it does not have other little Toyotas. It does not insist that we have uh, that we uh, provide the Japanese language uh, in America and, uh, or other benefits. Uh, it's just an, a one-time deal. Uh, but when, but when people cross that border, and especially when we, they cross the border without our even knowing who they are, whether they're coming from Mexico or Iran, uh, and to me, it's one of the great. Uh, Examples of utter irresponsibility in both parties that there has not been a control of the border now in a matter of decades because we don't know how many spies have come across that border, how many terrorists, and, in, and, and at some point, how many nuclear weapons they brought. Right. Have your views on this changed because not so much of the economic effects but the cultural effects? No, I, I've always uh, been been opposed on, on cultural on cultural grounds, though, just to open borders. A hundred years ago, immigration was a big issue. A hundred years ago, they collected volumes of data on different groups: which groups have the most people uh, on welfare, which groups have the least, who, which which set of which children from which group uh, do better in school, and which ones don't. Uh, what, the, what are the crime rates among different groups? And so forth. We saw this as a sensible adult decision to make, a trade-off to make, to decide who will get in. Uh, and, you know, when people came to Europe, to the United States, they didn't just land in New York. They landed at Ellis Island, and they were inspected uh, by medical people and other, other people. And uh, if they didn't uh, meet whatever the standard was, they went back to Europe. Today, right. we have nothing like that. Right. I'm going to shift gears. This is Ed again, Dr. Soul, a, a, a little bit, and st- staying with this chapter, but to, to connect something else in. Through, as I was reading through Chapter 23, you talk about all of the, the different reasons for, for inequality, and you say that there, there's, there's no way that, that even you know, one of these things would produce equality. Nevertheless, if you add up all of the things, the animals, the geography, uh, the culture, all, all of these aspects. But um, one thing as a, that, that struck me as I was reading it, we're also a big fans of uh, Professor Deirdre McCloskey. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know if you have, are you familiar with her her thesis that the what really changed it was was that the bourgeois were given dignity of language and that the the language is really the first thing that changed that enabled all of this uh, expansive wealth to really begin you know being beginning around you know, late seventeen hundreds early eighteen hundreds. No, I'm not familiar with that. I'll have to, love to check that out. Yes, it's 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 quite interesting. I'll recommend our own show to you. We we interviewed her back in August, so uh-huh. we'll we'll have to send it to you. It's pretty pretty fascinating thesis. But um, you know, one thing that I I think is interesting on this whole equality issue, uh, you know, we we, we see folks like. Um, uh, uh, Thomas uh, P- Pinckney's book uh, getting so much traction, and yeah. I, as I read through, you know, parts of that, because honestly, I, I couldn't tolerate reading the whole thing, to be quite frank. <laughs> but but what what I found was is is that it's really just Marxism in in a new and updated package. It's it's just about class warfare. Yes, uh, his whole uh, I don't I haven't read the whole thing either, but uh, I, I get no sense from him. That uh, production pays, plays a big role in any of this. Uh, also, he, he, he uses uh, statistics that are listed, the usual kinds of statistics, which talk as if they're, they're discussing particular groups of human beings when they're not. I mean, we talk, we, you know, they, they talk about the people who are in the top 10%, 20%, whatever percent, and the, those in the bottom uh, percentages. Uh, but all of those uh, brackets have constant changes of the, of the people in them. And so if you follow the top 10%, let's say, over a period of a decade, uh, the people who have passed in and out of that uh, uh, bracket uh, are going to be huge. Uh, at one point, I remember uh, discovering that uh, there were thousands of people who were in the top 400, you know, over a period of a decade. And in the top 1%, the turnover is so great that the majority of those people are in that bracket one year out of a decade. So the thing that really got me from Piketty, he was saying that the top 20, top 10% were really especially elite and they had this uh, terrible uh, role that they played. And later on I discovered that uh, 56% of American households will be in the top 10% at some point during their life, usually toward their older years. And so we're, we're, we're talking about uh, people in a certain bracket uh, who are transients as if they're permanent residents there. And it's really just a derivation of zero-sum thinking. Both Ron and I do a presentation when we're talking with small businesses that we believe the number one myth among business people is that business is a zero-sum game and that you know every single trade is – we talk about an even trade and playing poker with customers and things like that. And nothing could be further from the truth. As you just said, it, 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 we're enriched on both sides of the equation. But I'm just curious as to why do you think that that myth of, this, of zero-sum thinking is so – prevalent in not only in Marxist culture, but even here in the United States. I suspect it's an easier way to think about it, but I think probably a bigger reason is that it serves the interests of those who dominate the educational field, that uh, they, they, they have the, the, the left-wing vision, and it's easier to have that vision if you think that uh, someone got rich at the expense of somebody else. One of the sad things that you get from reading history is how many productive groups have been hated 
uh, attacked by mobs and driven out of the country uh, uh, on the grounds that they must have been got, they must have gotten rich at other people's expense. And even when the economy collapses after they had been driven out, as has happened in a number of cases, the Asians are driven out of Uganda being one of the more recent ones. Uh, it, ne- and it never teaches a permanent lesson that no, these people you're calling uh, parasites and bloodstuckers and all that, you drive them out, uh, the interest rates charged to, 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 to creditors goes up, the economy goes down, unemployment uh, skyrockets and so on, and it never teaches a lesson that no, these people are playing a, a serious role and have serious benefits to the economy. Dr. Saul, this is Ron again, and along that line, you point out in Chapter 22, the International Transfers of Wealth, that if foreign investors plunder wealth, then the USA should be the poorest. Yes, because the amount of wealth that that, uh, uh, international investors take out of the United States annually is larger than the gross domestic product of uh, Egypt, Uh, and then it happens every year. But of course, uh, that means that the investors have created far more than the gross domestic product of Egypt uh, in the United States, so they're taking out their cut of it. Right, and and just along the lines of the Piketty book, I mean, one thing that you've taught me in prior of your writings is that if you have to account for age as well, looking at these income distribution tables, and if you just accounted for age, half of the inequality kind of disappears. Yes, it's, it's true that uh, infants usually don't have as much money as their parents, uh, much less, and their parents don't usually have as much as their grandparents. Right. Yeah, I, I guess it, it reminds me of the German proverb. It's one of my favorite. If you want equality, visit a cemetery. Oh, wow. <laughs> it's one of my favorite all-time sayings. Um, but you, another thing that you write eloquently about is proportional representation or disparate impact, whatever you want to call it. And yeah. I love the way you expand it to all fields of human endeavor, that equality just doesn't exist anywhere in proportion to percentages of the population. Absolutely. And I, and I, I have a great sense of futility in, uh, in trying to, to get this across because the first time I did this was in uh, – 1995 in a book called The Vision of the Anointed. I had this yes. long list of things. I think one of them was that uh, men are struck by lightning, uh, I think something five or six times as often as women. Right. Uh, and you go through all these whole list of things, things where really discrimination uh, would, would, it has, plays no role. And, uh, uh, and here I mentioned about how, uh, you know, with, God, with various sports, the, 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 the skewed uh, distributions are just incredible. But uh, the average, the, uh, the average uh, golf pro who has played in a, in a PGA tournament has never won a single tournament in his whole, entire career. And yet uh, Arnold Palmer, Tiger Woods, and uh, Jack Nicklaus each won dozens of tournaments. And the, and the three of them put together won, won over 200 tournaments. I mean, it's just as skewed as possible. Right, right. You know, it reminds me, are, are you familiar with Charles Murray's book, Human Accomplishment? Oh, that is a great book. Isn't it? It is a great book. 4,002 people he documents that pretty much we're standing on the shoulders of as, as a civilization. Yes. It, it, so it has nothing to do with equality of results, or it, it's very inequality. Oh, my God. <laughs> Thank God for inequality. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, as someone who used to use a camera that had a rangefinder on it, 
I mean, I think back, you know, range finders are based on the Pythagorean theorem from 2,000 years ago. Now, if you're not, if you're not in a culture that is likely to, to uh, deal with the Pythagorean theorem, you're not likely to invent range finders. Right. You know, one of my favorite chapters in, in your basic economics book is the, uh, in this particular edition, it's the chapter 25, non-economic values. Oh, yeah. Where you talk about there are only non-economic values. So all the stuff about greed and, oh, but you can't look at an economy. You can't just look at the financial side of this. Other things are more important. Can you kind of explain your, your views on that? Well, economics is not a value in itself. It's just a method by which you can weigh one value against another. And that's very offensive to people who think that their values ought to be the preemptive values. And so the idea, if they, they want to, for example, they want to save Mono Lake, whatever that means, uh, and you tell them about the cost of trying to save Mono Lake, and they say, well, this is an economic, it's a non-economic value. Well, other people have other values. And if, if, if you want to, you know, Give half or ninety percent of your income to, to campaign to save Mono Lake. Why? That, that's your right. But what they really want to do is commandeer other people's earnings to be applied to the things that they value. And uh, there, there's no logical or moral uh, uh, basis for doing that. Right. And and one the other thing you point out in this chapter that I just love is that line. You know, we see it on bumper stickers. If it just saves one life, it's worth it. And oh and- yes. And, well, and you just absolutely drive a, a dagger into the heart of that argument. Yeah, because what, what mo- most safety uh, uh, advocates seem to ign- ignore uh, is that the biggest safety device of all is wealth. That when, a, when, a, when, a hurric- when a, an earthquake hits in uh, California and, ki- and kills a dozen people, that same earthquake would kill 100 people in some less affluent society and a thousand in some third world country. And the difference is that California has the wealth to build their buildings and bridges to withstand much greater stresses. They have much greater medical uh, resources available for those who are injured and so on. And so every year when when they bring out the the list of the great disasters around the world, uh, you you find that uh, the biggest financial uh, consequences are in uh, first world countries, but the most deaths are always in third world countries. Right, that is a great point, Dr. Soul, that wealth actually saves lives. Yes. Yeah. Uh, well, I know we're at the end of our time here, and I, I thank you for graciously staying a couple minutes over. We didn't want to stop you mid-sentence, but uh, I, I just have to agree. I think I read somewhere in one of Mark Skousen's books that Friedrich Hayek once said of Thomas Sowell, he's a genius. <laughs> and, oh, my goodness. And, and that's from one genius to another. I, I just think that's wonderful because I thoroughly agree. We are such big fans of your work, Dr. Sowell. Thank you so much for uh, writing this fifth edition of Basic Economics. It is, without a doubt, folks, the best book. Buy it as a Christmas gift. Give it to any high school student, college student. It's just a masterful work. And, Dr. Soul, we cannot thank you enough for, for honoring us uh, today with your interview. Well, thank you very much for having me. Yes, thank thanks, you. Dr. Soul. And folks, we'll, when we return, we'll, uh, we'll finish up. We'll talk a little bit more about some of Dr. Soul's books and his work. And we'll, of course, link all these on our show notes. Uh, you can find at verisage.com slash TSOE. But now we want to hear from our sponsor, Azamba.
We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. What if you could close more business with less effort and do it faster? What could your people accomplish if they had their own personal assistant keeping track of meetings and reminding them of follow-ups? What would it mean to have a perfect view of what your team and your prospects and your customers are doing? What if you could run your business from anywhere? You can have it all. Visit www.azamba.com forward slash soul today to find out how. That's azamba, A-Z-A-M-B-A dot com forward slash soul. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Holy cow, Ron. That was <laughs> Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, Happy Birthday, all wrapped up into one. We got a chance to talk to Dr. Thomas Soul for 40 minutes almost. It was. Uh, Voice America could cancel the show tomorrow, Ed, and I would, I would leave on a high. No, 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 no. Our producer's going, no, no, no. <laughs> no, I'm saying that too, but no. Yeah, no, no. And, yeah, it and, just, and it just, I would be, it would, it would be, be remiss to say I sh- I, that uh, Peter Wolf, who is was one of the principals or the principal at Azamba, who's one of our sponsors, you just heard their, their radio spot, uh, is, is also a huge fan of Dr. Soul. So hope, hopefully Peter's out there listening or uh, we'll get a listen to the show. So thanks. Thanks for what you do, Peter. And of course, Dan Krauss also at our at uh, leading results, as well as the the folks at Sage too, who who sponsor us all the time. So we just we we don't mention them often often enough, mostly because we have so much content, like with Doctor Soul. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'd like to thank Dan and, and Peter as well, and Sage for uh, making this possible. It's not, you know, Doctor Soul Ed just doesn't do many appearances. Um, you just don't see him very often. I know he's done a few shows recently because of the new book, but uh, what an honor it was to have him here. No, absolutely, and and uh, even even the shows that he was doing, I, I think it was was great that we were able to stay on his topic. And he's pushing a book, and I get that. And but but most of the folks who have him on uh, want to talk to him about race or or something like that. I I, I want to talk about his economic mind because it's just fascinating. He's he's just such a such a heavyweight out there. I, I I think he's one of the be- I think he is the best living economist. And That's what we put in our notes. So uh, I mean I you know I know there's lists out there and he shows up some of them and he doesn't show up on others of them. But he is without a doubt. He what I love about him is he's got he's got the historical uh, vantage point as well and the international. So when he looks at a topic, minimum wage, rent control, whatever, he does it not just in the USA, but around the world and throughout time. And exactly. basic economics is just brilliant. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've recommended this book to high school students. And then by the time they get in college, they thank me and say, wow, that just put me years ahead of my you know, fellow students because it's just absolutely brilliant. And there's, like he said, no, no graph and no equations in it. And and it's and it's plainly writ, written. It is there, there's not a lot in there where you're you're having to look up 
thousands of words and what's this economic context because he's always keeping it to for the layman or as he puts it you know the homeschooler and um, I, I I missed when I got the the copy run that that those hundred questions I got to go see what my score would be I got to take <laughs> take my test well yeah I want to take the test I want to answer those questions but he even gives you the page number where you can find the answer so it's really for people who are using this as a text in class or homeschooling or whatever but folks I mean we just can't recommend basic economics enough and one of the things I was dying to ask him Ed but just time was so short is. Outside of basic economics, I wonder what one book of of his other thirty some odd books would he rec- would he want people to read? And you know, I I can't speak for him, but I can tell you what what my choice would be. Um, and I'll tell you that's hard because I, I love all of his books. Mm-hmm. What do you think, Ron? I, I, I'm going to have to say, knowledge and decisions. Mm-hmm. And that was the book that was inspired by that essay that Friedrich Hayek wrote about the, the local use of knowledge and saying how, how local knowledge was itself scientific, even though, you know, it's not done with people with lab coats. You know, the realtor knowing the locations of the neighborhoods and the, the barista knowing, Ed, your favorite cup of coffee in the morning. You know, that's all local knowledge. And, and that's just as scientific as physics, Mm-hmm. Or anything else, and that that essay inspired Dr. Soul to write knowledge and decisions, and it is a masterpiece. It is, and it's, it then also I think partially inspired you to to write one of your books, right? It did. Mind over matter is is full of Dr. Soul <laughs> and, and, and quotes from him, uh, and 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 it is one of the reasons why this is a knowledge economy. I, I we I, we forgot to ask him what he thought about the Reagan quote, but uh, I, I'm sure he appreciated it because it, it it fits in with the theme of of all of his work, actually. No, absolutely, and 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 just back to basic economics is just so so quotable. I mean, there's just such good stuff in there. I I, I think this is in the earlier version, but perhaps not. I, like I said, I didn't read the, the whole thing of the new edition. But is isn't his line about greed being the the constant in in here as well, where he talks about it, you know blaming blaming the problems of the economy on greed is like blaming airline crashes on gravity. <laughs> Yes, he, I think that is in here, or certainly is was in one of the prior editions of, of Basic Economics. And uh, yeah, it's just a great point. I mean, you can't blame change on a constant. And one of the books he wrote, Ed, was The Housing Boom and Bust. And it, it, it's just such a logical, uh, uh, you know, chronological... Uh, you know, exposition of events in that whole crisis, and he lays the blame squarely where it belongs. You know, and Fanny and Freddie, it wasn't about greed. You you can't blame, you know, a change on greed on a constant. And his book, The Housing Boom and Bust, is just a masterpiece. If if you have any interest at all in understanding why the mortgage meltdown happened. Yeah, we're all we're all greedy, right? Or as Milton Friedman said, none of us is greedy. It's just the other guy who's greedy. <laughs> <laughs> and, and greed's been with us for quite a while. So, <laughs> yeah, as far as I as far as I know, always been there. Or what did what did Doctor Sirico call it? Avarice, avarice. Much right, right. Uh, yes, yes. Uh, and and it, 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 I also thought, you know, folks, we asked him on the break about Cuba, Ed, and I thought that was a very interesting answer he gave. I, I think so, too. I, we look forward to a forthcoming column that he said that he might be, be writing on that. 
I have to say, and um, you know, wonder if he'll listen to the show. But I, I did, I didn't obviously talk about it with him on the break. But I disagreed with what he had to say. <laughs> I, I, I knew you would, and I'll tell you, I, I think you and I are on the opposite end of this. I don't agree with what they're doing in Cuba. And listen, I love Cuban cigars; they're the greatest in the world. But um, I think all this is going to do is enrich Mr. Castro, and I think that whole country's a gulag. Yeah, and but I, 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 I don't. I see you, you. You're you're missing. I think the the greater point, which is once they get a taste of openness and freedom, it. it I, I I here's me. I'll go in China on record. Venezuela, my friend. I'll, yeah, I'll go on 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 record. Yeah, but they, they're much much bigger, and Venezuela is about to fall. Um, <laughs> here's I'll, I'll my, believe it when I see it. Here's here's I will go on record right now. So December nineteenth, two thousand fourteen. Within five years. The Castro regime will fall. Okay, well, that's been uh, predicted for quite a long time. No, no, well, I wouldn't have predicted that had they not had had the, had the changes not taken place this past week. All right, but that, but I will go on record saying is that the Castro regime will will be out because it, it, there's just there's just it's too close to the United States. It's there's too much stuff that could happen. Just hell, the import of and and trade of baseball players alone. <laughs> Well, I get that. Yeah, I get that. But you know what? From an economic standpoint, trade with Cuba is absolutely insignificant. It's, to it's us. Not, it, 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 yeah, to it doesn't us. even rise to the level of petty to cash. Us. And with that, the rest of the world trades with them. Well, I know, but to us. But, to, it, it, but it will explode with us. It will explode with us. It's well, because it's cheaper. cheaper but I, 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 look, I understand your point, and... Uh, I, I I totally get it and respect it. I just vehemently disagree. I think it's uh, I think they're thugs. I think that regime needs to be contained, and that's what we were doing. And I don't think opening it up is going to do anything. Well, you know, by that logic, then we should have kept kept uh, Japan closed after World War II because the the emperor stayed. Didn't get rid of the emperor. Yeah, but we decimated Japan. <laughs> <laughs> and, and they had human capital to rebuild, like like Germany and and other countries that were beneficiaries of the Marshall Plan. Which, by the way, is one of the things Doctor Soul talks about. I don't want to turn yes. this into a Cuba discussion, but no, that's okay. But, no, I, I, and it's great that we disagree. I I, I love it. Um, I only learn from people I disagree with. But um, yeah, I just I you know we can't recommend this book highly enough, folks. It's just a real. Real great uh, single volume on economics, and it is seven hundred pages. So he, I love how he wrote at the beginning. He said, "You know, like people, this has taken on weight over time." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and it has got thicker. <laughs> Buy the Kindle version; you're much better off. Yeah, absolutely. But it, but it is, uh, you know, it, his agent was uh, it was kind enough to send it to us uh, in PDF, and I. Kind of been. I read some of the beginning chapters and then some of the the uh, the later ones, and it's just brilliant. He's really updated it. He's really put some current examples in, uh, and it's it's just a brilliant piece of writing. And he's such a clear writer, and just so logical. Uh, you know, one National Review reviewer of one of his books, I forget which one, said, "Reading Doctor Soul is like chewing on nails." Yeah. <laughs> Because he just goes where the evidence takes him, yeah, and and that's what I really appreciate about him. I just you know he'll he he tells it like it is. 
Well, and we will be back after our last break. We're late to this break as well, but that's okay. We, it was well worth spending the additional time with Dr. Soul. But uh, it, as you know, you can get a hold of us at TSOE at Verisage.com. Also, uh, look for show notes at Verisage.com slash TSOE. And we have a new Twitter hashtag that we're using. We were competing with uh, TSOE with another, not, not show, but something else was using TSOE. So we've decided to change to Ask. T-S-O-E, A-S-K-T-S-O-E, which uh, doesn't appear that anybody else is using. Uh, so if you have a, a, something that, a question that you want to ask us, pound Ask T-S-O-E, and we will be sure to get to that on future shows. But right now, our third break and word from our sponsor, Sage. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Four new employees. A 20% increase in revenue. Being one of the 9 million women business owners in the U.S. These are your proudest numbers. Your landmarks of growth and success. Sage helps you achieve business milestones with cloud and software solutions that lead to deeper financial insights. Believe in your numbers. See what Sage can do for your business. Visit believeinyournumbers.com today. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. All right. Well, welcome back, everybody. Love that Van Frank Steamroller, Ed. That's great bumper music. (laughs) (laughs) Well, folks, we were honored to have uh, Dr. Thomas Soule on. He's currently the uh, Rose and Melton Friedman Senior Fellow at the think tank, the Hoover Institution, down in uh, Palo Alto. And he he is absolutely one of my all-time favorite authors. I, I literally am looking at a whole shelf of his books he's written over 30 books. Uh, it may even be close to 40 now. And uh, I, I can't recommend, I mean, all of his books are excellent. But Ed, one of the ones that I really like, in addition to basic economics and the knowledge and decisions, which, which had profound impact on me, but he wrote a little book called A Conflict of Visions. And in it, he, he's contrasting it's, I, I hate to use these labels because I don't want to simplify it, but, you know, the liberal and conservative mindset, you know, this idea that the, whatever you are, the opposite is, you know, mentally deranged or has a mental disorder. Well, that's nonsense. They have different visions of the world. And he lays out the constrained vision of man that we're, you know, we're subject to air, we're, 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 we're sinners, in, in other words, kind of like the traditional religious constrained view of man versus the unconstrained view of man. In other words, we're a blank slate and society can shape us. Mm. And I found that framework very, very helpful in understanding when I encounter somebody of the opposite perspective uh, of, you know, politics or economics or whatever, uh, that they have an unconstrained view of man. And it's just it's just a, a fascinating little book. And by, by unconstrained again, you just just mean that man is perfectible in this world in the ultimately? Yes. Is that 
Okay. Yes, that we, it, whether you want to call it a utopia or just, you know, like the new Soviet man, right? Like the old USSR used to talk about, we're going to build a new breed of man or, or even the Nazis talked about that. Uh, that's the unconstrained vision. And it, it's just a real interesting framework. I think it's quite ingenious way of looking at it. Uh, and he does a really good job. The book is called A Conflict of Visions, and, and it is definitely one of my all-time favorite Thomas Sowell books. And what's interesting about that, and as you kind of think through it, is it, it on the on the surface it would only almost appear opposite, right? You know, conservatives has it have a tendency to uh, be, be uh, very much the social engineers. At least that's their their tack nowadays. You know, we have to, to manage the society uh, or or a consider that this is the the, the 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 tack you get from the media. Right, whereas the the liberals are the ones who who just want um, really to to give everything, but what it's really with the notion of that if we if we level everything out, if we do level this playing th- field, then everything will be hunky dory and perfect again. Right, right, yeah, no, it 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 is. It's it, and like all of his stuff, it is so logical when he lays it out the way he does. But and is and it a return other- to Eden type type thing? <laughs> is that, no, well, no, really. It's like they return to Eden, but his point, his opening point in 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 uh, basic economics is that you know Eden didn't have scarcity. Right, right. It wasn't an economy. The Garden of Eden wasn't an economy because everything was in abundance. Yeah, yeah. He he's you know in his work he doesn't get he doesn't get very religious, but he definitely has the constrained view of man. I mean, he's nowhere near. A utopia, and, and and I was fascinated to ask him about the. You know, he used to be a Marxist, and there's a great interview with him on Fox News um, where he's also asked that question, gives a little bit longer answer than he did here, and maybe Ed, we can post that on our show notes, and we'll try and post some other interesting things about Doctor Soul and get some of his. Uh, I'm not sure we can post all of his books, Ed, but we can certainly get the, no. the most popular ones up there. No, and just by way of influence, folks. I mean, we, we're I'm here, sitting here following Twitter just in case we've got some people who ask questions on for of us. But the, the you know Thomas Soul gets a new tweet of a quote of his like every three to five minutes on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> he is one of the most quotable writers out there. I mean, I just, I just love reading him because whether you're reading his uh, newspaper column, and folks, he is a syndicated column. I think he writes two or three a week. And one of my favorite of those, Ed, is his uh, random thoughts on the passing scene. Yes, which we're going to pick up on, aren't we, Ron, in the, in the new year? Give people yes. a little preview. Yes. We're, what are we going to do? We're going to have Free Writer Friday. That's right. Free Rider Friday starting in January, folks. We're we're going to uh, and turn the show instead of something that's been more topical based, something to, to something that's more current events based. Uh, and the freeloader is the fact that you know we get to freeload and, and we don't have to prepare until that day. That's the way or, we're going. Or free rider, free rider. <laughs> I'm right. And, so free and, rider. Then, and not only not only free ride off uh, events going on in the media and various things we're reading, but I get to free ride off you too because one of the things that we've agreed to do on this is not share with each other what topics we're going to bring up. <laughs> That's right. So, so <laughs> I, you know, we're going to be testing each other's reaction off the cuff, which is going to be very interesting. But uh, So, Ed, tell us what, you know, next week, folks, uh, Voice America is obviously on vacation uh, because of the Christmas holidays, and then the, the week after that also 
on vacation because of holiday. So, Ed, what do we got planned for the Soul of Enterprise over the next two Fridays? Well, we're going to do some encore presentations, as they say in the biz, Ron, encore presentations. And we're going to do I, the one, one that we brought up today, Professor Deirdre McCloskey, which was our first interview. So you can compare our style back then to what we're, we're doing today. <laughs> but but uh, Professor McCloskey was, was one of the most fascinating interviews that we've had. Uh, and uh, curiously, it was interesting that, that Thomas Hall had not heard of her, th- her thesis so maybe he's going to go read a book based on our recommendation which I and ed we're going to have cool. to send him that show because he he needs to become familiar with that i'd love his take on that yes absolutely and then the second show that we're going to run we're also going to run uh, uh, the uh, a encore presentation of our rory sutherland show which was the easiest show for us to do because i think we said about seven words <laughs> Yeah, that was a hard one to get a word in edgewise, but that was a great show because Rory is just a font of ideas. So that those are going to be two really good shows, folks, to uh, to review on, pick up on. That that's going to be great, and I look forward to that. Yeah, I'm looking forward to listening to him again as well. All right, well, folks, I guess uh, th- that's it for us, and uh, we're taking the next couple weeks off. But we hope you uh, tune in for our uh, encore performances with Deirdre McCloskey and Rory Sutherland. And uh, Ed, see you in 167 hours or times, <laughs> times, times three. Times three. Thank you. I can't do the math that quick. So thank you. This has been the Soul of Enterprise Business in the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by Sage, supporting small and medium-sized businesses by creating greater freedom for them to succeed. Join us uh, in a few weeks on Friday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time. In the meantime, folks, feel free to visit us at at verisage.com slash TSOE for more information on each show, including our show notes. We'll link to uh, the Dr. Soul books and other interesting things about him. And in the meantime, you can contact Ed or myself at TSOE at verisage.com. Have a wonderful holiday season, folks, and we'll see you in the new year. 